0: everyone. Quick note before we start the show. Um, For this episode, we had a really awesome conversation, although it was a little bit long, so I'm splitting this episode into a part one and part two, and we have a psychiatrist and a therapist on for this episode, so I'm kind of arbitrarily calling this one the therapy episode and the next one the psychiatry episode uh, for no particular reason, but hopefully you guys enjoy.
1: I wonder what would have happened if someone would have just told that kid, like, it's okay to have these thoughts. It's human to have these thoughts. Just ask for help when you do have them.
0: Welcome back to I'm the Villain. Today, we're going to have, this is actually really exciting because we, you know, had our episode with Shrey on like mental health stigma as kind of like the the patient's perspective, but we're going to be talking with, um, Justin and Eddie who are both practitioners, um, kind of in the mental health space about what it's like kind of being on the flip side of that, uh, like relationship. Um, so if both of you could kind of just give a very brief introduction to yourselves, um, for the audience, just anything you think the audience should know about you. Maybe Justin, you can go first.
1: So yeah, I am a Dr. Justin Romano. I am a 29-year-old psychiatry resident in the town of Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I do residency out here. I'm a third-year resident. I'm about to do the Child and Adolescent Fellowship here at Creighton. Um, so I'm gonna be working with kids uh, in psychiatry. Um, I was like given the, uh, just the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist, because even I didn't know that for quite some time. But a psychiatrist helps manage um, mental health issues with medications and with therapy psychologists mostly only do the therapy side of things um so i like skiing i like music that's me go for it Eddie. <laughs> uh, do i have to give age too or are you giving like your full stats
2: like, <laughs> <laughs> like whatever you want <laughs> Uh, yeah I'm Eddie I'm 27 I'm here in Portland Oregon Um, I work at a uh, partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient eating disorder program um, for hospital system here I am what's called like a master's level clinician so I have my master's I was recently licensed by the state of Oregon uh, as a licensed professional counselor so it finally feels legit people told me everything was legit before that but now I feel like a (laughs) legit therapist
0: So, so, Eddie, can you kind of give us a little bit more, um, like, what it, when you say, like, it feels like you're a real therapist, what are you doing in your day-to-day? Like, what is, yeah, yeah what does that entail?
2: Yeah, um, so my program is pretty uh, rigid in the schedule. Um, patients will come in uh, adult patients come in 8.30 till 3.30 every day, Monday through Friday, and then Saturdays from 8.30 to 2. And then uh, we also have a teenager program. So they are there from 12.30 to 4 o'clock every day um, at the partial hospitalization level. When you move to intensive outpatient, it's a step down. So they're only there about half the time that they normally, is, that they normally are. Um, my day just depends on what I'm scheduled with. Um, we get the schedule a week in advance. Uh, I'll have anywhere between like two to three groups a day where, i'm just running either a teenager group or an adult or a, that's teenager and adolescent same thing uh teenager or adult group and then um i basically schedule my patients in between because i do have a caseload of about four patients um so we'll do any, we'll do individual therapy we'll do family therapies or their support therapy if they have like a, a partner or like a brother or sister that wants to come in uh and it's really just kind of filling in the day with that um a lot of people don't talk about it in school, but paperwork takes up a lot of my day. (laughs) just trying to uh, type (laughs) notes and make sure everything is is up to date. But that's kind of the the day to day for me. Things can change pretty quickly. Like if if a patient goes to the hospital or if a patient discharges out of nowhere, but um, that's kind of like a standard standard day for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. During or before COVID, did you
3: work out of a clinic?
2: Yeah. So I actually was one of those weird people that changed jobs in the middle of the pandemic. Um, (laughs) I used to work at a community mental health clinic in a more like rural area. Um, and this was a clinic that had like the, the state grant for mental health treatment. Um, so we were basically like a, we were the county mental health clinic. So, um, basically if you were in the county and you were on what's called the Oregon health plan, um, you could come to us for basically free mental health treatment. Uh, and then I switched to this new job, which my job, what I've been told, is way different right now than it is pre or post-COVID. Uh, there used to be a lot more uh, just... The schedules are way different. They would do meals like inside the hospital. Um, My my clinic is in the professional buildings like across the street from the hospital. So I'm actually in person every day. Um, I just wear like my face mask. The groups are a lot smaller. Um, I used to wear a face shield, but now we're allowed to wear uh, goggles to protect our eyes. So um, everything is in person still. So I still go into the clinic and do all that. So it really hasn't changed too much other than like the scheduling for me, Um, but yeah.
0: Interesting, so is that for, um, are you also in person, Justin, for the stuff that you're doing?
1: Um, I'm a little bit of both. So once COVID hit, things shifted a little bit to where, previous uh, or prior to COVID, the insurance companies would not reimburse you for doing a lot of telehealth things, phone calls and Zoom calls. Um, But after COVID, the the regulations loosened up. So about half of my patients are uh, either on telephone or on Zoom, and then half of them still come in person. Um, It's actually really nice because I just received the new Pfizer vaccine, the brand spanking new thing. So I don't have to worry about giving COVID to my <laughs> patients, which is wow. a fantastic thing. Uh, so, um, yeah. So about half and half.
3: I w- I've always wanted to ask uh, someone on the on the other side of the phone this: How is it like <laughs> for you doing therapy, you know, remotely
2: versus doing it in person? Uh, when I was doing it at my last job, and we actually so in Oregon, if I don't know if you guys heard, but in Oregon back in like September, we had these really bad wildfires. Um, and there was like, I would drive home and like the sky was like red. It was like the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Just how, how much, how bad the fires were. Uh, and it really got into our building. So we actually like went virtual for a week cause the smoke was so bad. Like the air quality was like the worst it could possibly be in the area. So we did telehealth. I've done telehealth in two different jobs. Um, I don't like it at all. <laughs> it's really difficult. Um, I feel for my therapist colleagues that like do it daily and for like eight to nine hours a day, but I had such a hard time with it. And it's probably just me. I mean, I feel like I have a hard time focusing as it is, but just to do it like therapy to me is like there's the whole experience of like being in the office and doing all reading body language, reading your facial expressions. It kind of gets taken away Uh, A lot of my my tools get taken away when, when it moves to virtual and telehealth. Yeah,
1: I think one of the main things we can do in a therapy session is just being able to validate and a lot of validation is your body language and your facial expressions and your ability to keep eye contact and listening and all those things are therapeutic in and of themselves. And they're healthy for people to experience, especially in situations where they don't have anyone in their life who really listens to them or really validates them. So when you're talking to people over the phone and there are these like really long pauses where it's like, Hey, you still there, buddy? And it's like a little bit, you, you can't quite validate as much. It's, it loses a little bit. Um, but with that said, I do think it is awesome that there has been more of a push to do more therapy. And there is an upside to all of it too, to where, um, a lot of my patients who said like, Oh, I'm super anxious to come into the doctors. They would even like miss appointments or or no show their appointments because they were so anxious being able to do it online, being able to, being able to do it on an app or through their phone really cuts out a lot of that anxiety too. So it opens up the door for more patients to get therapy. So Pluses and minuses on both sides. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I would imagine if you can just like be like in your bed, in your room, in a place that's like comfortable for you, it would make it a lot easier from a patient's perspective in some cases. Yeah. And around yeah. your
1: pets. I mean, that's one of the cool things yeah. about yeah. Zoom <laughs> is that I get to meet all my patients' pets for the first time and, uh, and yeah. <laughs> see how calming it is for them too. And to be able to do like therapy and, and talk about their emotions and everything with their pets around is almost um, a little uh, disarming.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: For that sure. does sound that does sound super appealing, actually. Like being yeah. able to be surrounded with the things that you know already give you comfort. Right. Um, I personally, you know, I I feel like I prefer in person when I do therapy, and have done a couple remote sessions, and it didn't really gel well with me. But
2: I didn't. I wasn't looking at it from like an accessibility perspective.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I will say I did have because um, I see my own therapist too, and I think the one time I did. Telehealth, I was, I just was like, man, this is, this is just not the same. (laughs) Like, I don't know. There's something about, you know, being in the therapist's office, like on their couch or in their chair and just there with them. Like Justin was saying, it's just like the physical presence was, you know, some of the comforting things that made me feel better in in session.
0: Do you always have your patients turn their video on or do they often just, is it just voice?
2: Uh, when I was doing it, it was always video on, um, Mm -hmm. Uh, the other, the other part of it is too is like we would have meal groups with them and as you know eating disorder treatment we have to make sure they're eating and completing meals or seeing how much they complete so that was kind of helpful for us because like well you need to have your camera on anyway so make sure you keep it on so you keep kind of monitoring mm-hmm. that feels yeah. like it might be oh, man like kind of more awkward. to I
3: feel like in person, if you're eating, you can kind of just like observe the person's plate. Mm -hmm. But via video, if the plate isn't in view, you have to like ask them to show you their plate.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And that's exactly what we do. I I don't do it that often. But we the teenagers because they're only there for the afternoon, they'll do uh, breakfast virtually with the group. So that's what they end up doing is like show your plate to the camera and like, you know, show the, the cup or make sure everything is empty like you say it is. So the the teenagers definitely do not like it
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> are they mostly um teenagers or or like kids or do you have also like adult patients that you work with
2: yeah, I before this job, I only worked with ages 12 to, like, 18 or 19. Um, yeah. So this is kind of really got. I was one of those people that in school was like, I want to work with kids and teenagers. And a lot of people were like, I don't want anything to do with that. But for me, like, that's, that's the population I enjoy the most. But in this job, I've definitely gotten more used to working with. And actually... Out of all four of my current patients, only one of them is a teenager. So I basically work mostly with adults. Um, But right now, like our ages, we have like 14 teenagers and then like eight adult patients. But they're in separate rooms doing separate things on separate schedules. Um, So we do do both, but we do have we have two teenage groups and then one adult group.
0: I'm curious, is it different? Like, is the approach that you take to trying to solve their problem different for a teenager versus an adult?
2: I don't think my approach is very different from adult to, to teenager. Like my personality, like it is the way it is. And that's how everybody gets it like you get the same Eddie, you know, regardless of uh, adult or teenager groups, I think what you do try to focus on and what is different is like, what kind of supports disease does each, does each patient have? Uh, teenagers typically have like family members or like parents or, you know, siblings or people living with them. And I was actually just telling some patients earlier today in a group where um, we ask a lot of our patients to get rid of their scales. So they're not weighing themselves and, you know, mm-hmm. causing them to restrict their intake or anything like that. And I was like, you know, a lot of the time with the teenagers, it's super easy to get you guys to not weigh yourself because mom and dad are going to walk into the the bathroom and take the scale out and that's end of story. Like you're not really going to argue with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but our adults, if they live with their significant other or a roommate, like there's not much Monitoring that goes on, and they can kind of get away with a lot it's it's harder that's one. that's a good point it is harder to tell adults sometimes what to do than it is to tell a teenager what's recommended or tell a parent what to do um My approach well, presumably
0: is usually ex- the adult kind of like came to you in the first place right so that's true they're that's looking the, for the help
2: that that's a good point that is the other part of it where adults will some will most of the time bring themselves or they'll get recommended to come to us and they'll still come where teenagers sometimes it's almost like the the kicking and screaming where they're not trying to be there, but it's trying to, like, you know, make them feel comfortable and build enough rapport to where they're like, okay, fine, like, I'll try this out, I'll do it, like, whatever, I'll be here. (laughs) But with adults, you're right. A lot of the times they do want to be there, and a lot of them report high motivation when they start. Uh, The teenagers, you really got to build the motivation.
0: Do the parents have the ability to kind of force them since they're, like, their guardian to go? Or do they have a choice?
2: You know... That's a good question. Justin might have a better idea. Yeah. I know at my last job, at my last job, it was if, a, and this might just be Oregon too, but ages 14 and above, the teenager can say yes or no if they want to do treatment. Um, below that, the parents can like bring them and we can try, but after a certain amount of time, if it's like, this isn't working, they're not engaging, like, you know, there's not really much more we can do at this point, like maybe holding off or maybe waiting a little bit and then trying again. Um but I'm sure. Yeah, Justin, what is what's your experience on that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. The parents have the most legal power, um, especially if they're if the parents are just like following medical advice, they can essentially force their kid to do it, even if they don't want it which we try and avoid as much as possible. We try and get as much buy-in from the younger patients as much as possible. But I really liked your question of like, how do you treat teenagers and adults differently? Um, I actually have a, a child clinic where my youngest patient is about like six years old. Um, and it's, it's tough uh, uh, because I've been working with adults for the past two and a half years. And then to all of a sudden jump in with a six year old and be like, excuse me, young man, are you having any signs (laughs) or symptoms of anhedonia? Like you can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, you have to really change all your questions. Yeah.
3: What did that preparation look like for you, Justin? Like, did you like just do a lot of reading before you got started seeing kids or was there like formal training?
1: Yeah, reading, uh, talking to my mentors and peers. So like I'm I'm in residency right now. So most of my cases, I still have to run by a doctor who's uh, at full attending level. Um, So like a lot of times, uh, even before I started seeing kids, I had a couple of days uh, to work with the child and adolescent trained psychiatrists at my department who you know kind of gave me some tips and tricks, like what are their favorite ways to ask questions? Like instead of, you know, because you ask a kid, hey, you feeling depressed? They're like, I don't know so you have to say like hey what emotion would you say you are most of the time are you happy most of the time are you sad are you worrying you kind of you have to do a lot of projective things you have to ask them like hey if you had three wishes what would you wish for and the things that they tell you about really tell you a lot about who they are and where their mind is like you know, if a kid is really anxious and worrying, they might say, I want my mom to feel better or I want my so-and-so to, to feel better. I want the world to be a better place. And then some kids might just say like, I want a Lamborghini. Um, so it's like <laughs> their, their answers, they're a little cryptic and you kind of have to decipher them a little bit. But yeah, it's 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 training, it's personal feel, it's um, how comfortable you are just being around kids in general, but it's kind of your own style, which is fun.
0: What do you do for the kids that don't want to be there?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> Usually I just try and uh, I, I, I try not to force it. Um, so many psychiatrists, especially I feel like old school psychiatrists, are just like, sit down, we're having a chat. You know, you're not leaving here until I get the information. And me, I'm just like, hey you know, you can talk to me, you cannot, that's okay. A lot of times we have to talk to the parents then to really kind of get the background of the situation, what's going on. Um, We'll oftentimes have access to talk to the therapists, talk to schools, talk to teachers. Um, If I'm doing like an ADHD evaluation or something like that, I'll send their teachers uh, different sheets that they can fill out that helps gives us a good idea of whether or not they actually have ADHD or not. So especially for kids who aren't necessarily always 100% willing to talk, um, collateral information. So parents, teachers, just even siblings too, just get a a broad idea of what's going around them. Try not to force it with the kid themselves. And over time you start to build that rapport and they'll start talking to you more.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the rapport is a big part. I think, um, for me, I feel fortunate that I I can like connect on different levels with a lot of kids, whether it's just different interests. Um, like TikTok is pretty big and like a lot of people are just <laughs> like when I say that I'll watch TikToks, they're like, Why are you watching TikTok? And what they don't understand is that like Vine was huge when I was in college and like a lot of them are very similar <laughs> to Vine. So it's like I still laugh from it and get entertainment from that. So it's like, oh, like we'll connect on that. Or sometimes with kids, it's like sport, you know, just little things that when you can make a connection with a kid or a teenager on something that they relate to, like video games or sports, or if I had a patient one time that had a book in her hand, that was the same book that I just finished reading. And I don't read that much. But <laughs> I just finished reading like three weeks before. And I was like, Oh, that's a great book. I just re-. And then after that, you know, they had no issue opening up to me or telling me different things when we would check in and do different groups together so it's like Justin says like trying to make that connection trying to build the rapport so that they they feel like they can trust you and they feel like oh like Eddie or Justin those are people that I can talk to or they, they listen to me I told them one time what was going on and they heard what I had to say and for a lot of those kids that just doesn't happen at home so if you can yeah. do that for them in treatment or at their appointments you know whatever the case may be that's really helpful in building a really strong therapeutic relationship
0: so do you go out of your way to consume, like, kid stuff? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. I don't go out of my way. <laughs> Just in my I'm way. on season seven I don't of Paw Patrol, of... actually, right now. So <laughs> I, <have> no <laughs> I,
2: think, I think what it is is that, and I had this feeling when I was, like, 18, 19, 20 years old, is that I can be mature if I need to. I can be, quote, unquote, professional if I need to. But Justin knows, like, I'm just not a very mature person as it is. And, like, a lot of those things, like, I still play video games sometimes, or You know, the TikTok or things like that that, like, I find entertaining or funny just happen to be what a lot of, like, kids and teenagers think are funny. So it just works out that way. If if it gets to a point where it doesn't work anymore, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But at least for right now with this current generation, I think I'm okay. <laughs>
1: I'll go out of my way sometimes, especially like when I first started this journey into mental health, I, I did a, a psych rotation at um, Seattle Children's. And one of my patients uh, was having suicidal ideation after watching 13 Reasons Why. And I had not seen it yet. Um, so I made sure to watch it Um and, you know, by the end of the, by the time I actually finished it, like my, my patient had discharged, but like that, that theme kept on coming back up where lots of different young people were struggling because of the triggering, uh, episodes on 13 reasons why. So, um, yeah, I, I like to try and go out of my way a little bit, at least to, to, Hit the highlights, mm-hmm. especially if I've heard something multiple times. And even like a lot of... I, I, I'm similar to Eddie where I try and connect over video games a lot. And, you know, all my my patients were saying like, Fortnite, Fortnite, Fortnite. So Eddie and I started playing Fortnite together. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and that true. was a blast. That was over... Uh, well, first cu- first yeah. uh, during quarantine. So, yeah, like yeah. it's it's fun... And that's one of the things that I really like about working with kids is that you do stay fresh on a lot of the stuff and, and what's new and it helps keep point. you, keeps you young. And I, I think that's a pretty cool part about my job.
2: I've had kids yeah. like I had one kid. She told me um, that my music taste wasn't that great because <laughs> we, we got we got on the topic of music. And I was like, she's like, well, who do you who do you listen to? I was like, oh, like I like, you know, Khalid or like different R&B artists. And like, I'm really big into like 2000s hip hop and R&B because that's just nostalgic. And I really like it. And then one time she came into session, she's like, Eddie, I got to put you on to some new music. I was like, OK, like, <laughs> let's hear it out. So she like gave me some artists to listen to. And I came back and I was like, you know. That was actually some good stuff, and I appreciate your recommendation. So it's, you know, (laughs) but that's the thing. is like once you've made that connection of music or video games or whatever, and, you know, 13 Reasons Why, different TV I ask kids all the time, like, what are you guys watching on Netflix? Mm -hmm. One, because, you know, we all need recommendations. But two, it's like, okay, like, hey, did you watch the newest whatever? Like, are you caught up on Grey's Anatomy? Things like Mm -hmm. that. Like, just continuing to – you want them to feel comfortable, and, you know, it's not a lot of extra work to – listen to a song here, there, or, you know, watch a little bit of a TV show just so that it's easier for them. The next time you talk with them.
3: Yeah. So Justin, what were your thoughts on 13 reasons why I only, I only watched a couple episodes of it, but were you, yeah, I'd love to just get your thoughts as a mental health professional.
1: Yeah, I'd say there was a huge backlash in the mental health community against 13 reasons why, because uh, longitudinal studies show that there was an increase in suicide attempts. Uh, and completed suicides after that show came out. So it's such a, a tricky subject matter. And on one hand, I, I wish that um, that suicide rates didn't go up in that short term. But I think it did open up c- the conversation about suicide and got people thinking about it more and brought a lot of attention to it, too. Was it an entertaining show? Yeah, I really enjoyed watching it. And I thought it was it did a good job... Of, you know, because so many people they look at teenagers and they think like, oh, those teenagers, they don't have really bad problems. They're fine. Their mm-hmm. problems aren't as bad as mine, which is very common in today's society. Comparing it to yourself, um, and I think that show did a good job of really highlighting just how convoluted and tricky teenagers' lives can be. Like, obviously, that's a TV show, but like, it showed you. I mean, like the kid who had uh, you know, a mother for um, who was into drugs and alcohol, and like stuff that real kids experience, uh, and how it leads to mental health problems. So yeah, on one hand I was like, ah, it's a shame that it led to an increase in suicides, but at the other hand, it did bring some good light to it. And I think, um, and helped just teach young people about mental health. So pluses and minuses. Yeah.
2: I, I actually, um, I feel bad saying it sometimes cause I actually watched the whole show. Um, and I feel bad saying that as a regular person, a non-therapist i had no issues with the show because it was like it was entertaining and that's why i watched it but i think like to justin's point is like yeah there was definitely some backlash there was definitely in like some uh mental health forums and like on reddit and stuff that i'm a part of like there was definitely a lot over the last few years of like well 13 reasons why is premiering again or season two is back or season three is back like get ready to see something at work or get ready for for issues to come up because of it but like justin said i mean it I think for a lot of parents and a lot of older adults it was kind of eye-opening to where it's like this is like le- these are like legit issues that go on for a lot of kids and you know I think a lot of teenagers struggle with not being taken seriously enough like they deserve mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm.
3: Do you all feel like the world could use like with the, I'm sure the answer to this is going to be yes, but do you feel like the country could use a just more open dialogue about suicide in general? Yes. <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs> yes. 100%. I think um when people like I had a, um, a coworker one time who um, they had a at my old job, like they had a, a patient who was feeling suicidal and it was their first suicidal patient and they just didn't know what to do. And even just even in the mental health field, like it, they just didn't know what to do. Like, how do I how do I sit with this? How do I. How can I be okay with my patient feeling suicidal? So, like, trying to, like, walk through them with that and also having to walk through that with, like, the patient's parents and try to educate them on, like it's okay for someone to feel suicidal and have these thoughts. It doesn't mean like something is going to happen. It just means we need to now, you know, pay more attention to it or we need to be aware of it and we need to see what we can do to not be as triggering for this patient and make sure that we're taking care of them in the best way possible.
3: Mm. Yeah.
1: So many people are afraid to talk about suicide because they have this idea that they're going to implant the idea into people's heads, but really that's not really true. The numbers don't really shake out to show that. So like, it's okay to talk about suicide. We need to get better as a society. I think schools need to start talking about it a little bit more. I've heard of some plans at schools for them to start putting like the National Suicide Hotline number on their student ID cards. Uh, I, I think there just needs to be more dialogue for kids. There was even um, a, a teenager in the area where I live recently who um, died by suicide and no one had any idea. Like, no one had any idea that that kid was really struggling. Uh, and then all of a sudden, one day, bam, they, there was a headline in the paper saying that this, this person had passed away. Um, and I always wonder, like, I wonder what would have happened if someone would have just told that kid, like, it's okay to have these thoughts. It's human to have these thoughts. Just ask for help when you do have them. Because a lot of people have them. A lot of people do. But the important part is that you know when you need to ask for help. And so I wish more kids knew that and heard that. Yeah.
3: I feel like I, when I think of, I know that you all are, like, required to raise, like, some kind of alarms if someone expresses interest in hurting themselves. I... I guess I'm curious about what happens after that. Like, does that patient still stay with you, or are you required to like escalate them to someone else? Or like, talk to me about that process.
2: Yeah, Uh, I think it depends. I mean, the the answer that a lot of people hated in grad school that I really loved was that it always depends. Yeah. And. People hate that because a lot of people really like to have a right or wrong answer. But for me, that I enjoy that answer because it's like, OK, that just means I have to take every patient and every client and everyone I work with as an individual. And I can't take their symptoms or their struggles and I can't just tie it into somebody else that I've worked with because they have a whole different set of things that they've gone through. But I think the biggest thing that we look out for is things like um, if you're having suicidal thoughts or if you're having thoughts to harm yourself, you want to look at, well, do you have any plans to harm yourself? And that means like legitimately, like what are your plans? I've had people tell me like, well, I don't have any plans. Like I've just thought like what it would be better if I didn't wake up tomorrow morning. It's like, okay, cool. Like now I had not cool that you're having those thoughts, but cool. Like now I have a, a guiding point to where you're currently at. So right now you're not actively planning to walk out of my office and do x y and z what you're telling me is right now you're having a really hard time and it it might be better if you just weren't awake in the morning so you kind of start with that you start with do you have any plans do you have any intent like do you do you have no plan but do you have an intent to find a way to harm yourself or do you have a plan but you have absolutely no intent to act on the plan so again it really all depends on like different different factors like that and just trying to determine like well if it's a teenager can mom and dad make sure to you know monitor you know jimmy and make sure that he's okay in the evening and make sure that um his door is staying open and make sure we remove all the sharps from his from his room and you know lock up the kitchen knives or you know the family has a gun but it's locked up in a safe and only mom and dad have the the code so it's really trying to assess the situation and kind of figure out where the patient is at in that
1: moment yeah and then when you if you determine that the patient does need to actually go to an inpatient hospital like if you ask them, hey, are you, are you having thoughts of hurting yourself? They say yes. We're like, how would you do it? They say, well, I've been hiding a razor blade. I want to cut myself. So like, if they have intent, they have a plan, they're planning on doing it, then that's usually when we say, "Like, okay, let's get you to a hospital. And from there, it depends on state. It depends on laws. Um, usually, typically what happens is you start out at the emergency room. Um, so you, you escort the patient to an emergency room. Like I work at a hospital with outpatient clinics and an emergency room. So security unfortunately has to escort them. And it feels like it, it feels terrible because I mean it feels kind of like this kid's going to jail when they're just getting help for their mental health. But that's the unfortunate protocol and safety measures in the hospitals, just trying to not get sued. Um, but uh, you know, so a lot of times we we take kids to the emergency room and then from there um, they'll go to like an inpatient psychiatric unit where they'll go get more help for the. For, uh, usually, the inpatient psych unit is for kids mostly with like active plans of suicide or or very unstable uh, or sick from a mental health standpoint.
0: Mm -hmm. what is the I mean when you say it like just depends it feels like how much of, of what you do do you feel like is a really a teachable thing because it seems like a lot of it in my perception is that it's so judgment based and it seems like you can't really teach someone how to have good judgment or how to read people like all of these things seem like very squishy not super teachable things but I could be wrong about that so what are you like, what do you think about that?
2: I I think you bring up a great point. I think that's a lot of it is very hard to read chapter seven tonight in your textbook and <laughs> let's talk about it tomorrow morning. Right. Yeah. Like, and that's probably why I did not like much of grad school because I just, well, one, I don't focus very well on doing homework, but it was like, I can read about depression all day and I can read about anxiety. I can read about whatever Yeah. I can read about the different treatment modalities, but unless I actually do it, I'm not going to know what to do. In the moment. And so a lot of it for me, and in my opinion, is a lot of it is, you know, experience based. Thankfully, we have things like internships that are required. And thankfully, like you have to do those things to even graduate from grad school. But a lot of it and it's hard for a lot of people who first get into the field where like, you know, you get a job at a community mental health clinic like I did. And then now you have three or four patients on your caseload who are suicidal. And I never learned how to handle this. Like, what do I do? And it really there's no like good answer for it other than like you have your supervision because you have to be supervised by like state law. Like you have to be supervised by somebody Uh, and you have like colleagues around you who have the experience and like you can kind of collaborate with things like that. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's really not a good answer to it. And it does kind of suck because it's like you go to school for two or three years to get your master's or, you know, your higher education. And then how am I supposed to? work with people that are struggling with this right. other than I have to have the experience
0: well do you think the model is, uh, that they teach is the right model like would it be better if it was just like an apprenticeship model and you didn't even have like the book work because it doesn't sound like the book works that useful
2: uh, I'm probably the worst person to ask about the bookwork because I <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't a fan of it but I have seen a lot of people like the book work is very important for them and very helpful for them so again it's not gonna be a good answer but it really it <laughs> It depends. I mean, it. I think, I think the model is as best as it could be right now, where it's like two to three years of school with another with a year and a half of experience based learning through an internship at the same time. I I don't know if it gets if it can get much better than that. Um, maybe extending the the internship or extending, you know, how long you have to be uh, an intern for. But there's really not a a perfect way to do it i think
1: yeah. and and i will yeah. advocate slightly for the bookwork side of things just because it helps give you a really good foundation like if you did all apprenticeships you might get one crazy mentor who teaches you all the wrong things so it's nice to just know that you're learning like stuff that has been tried and true in science and and been has evidence yeah, for a, it. a standard baseline yeah. and then like i really liked your question of um is there, it seems like so much of a judgment thing determining if someone's suicidal. There has been a push in medicine and in mental health to have more objective measures of suicidality. So like, you know, Eddie and I are actually going to do a podcast on suicide safety screens, but there's something called like the Columbia Suicide Risk Assessment. So there are things that like, It's like a very specific algorithm that gives you a list of questions to ask and will even give you like a high-risk, moderate-risk, low-risk score. So even then, at that point, you still have to determine if the high-risk needs to go in and the low-risk doesn't, but there are tools out there that will help you determine suicide risk uh, if if you need to do so.
3: Justin, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate it. I don't, I, you know, I don't know if I've ever, like, been able to just talk with a therapist before, like, in a non-therapist <laughs> <laughs>
2: I hope it was enjoyable, because um, I know we enjoyed it.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah, dude. certainly insightful. Yeah. Um, the question that I'm asking everybody during quarantine is, how have you all been trying to, like, stay sane, stay busy, whatever that means to
1: you during this real shitty time you want to (laughs) go (laughs) just sure Um, one of the things that i always like to tell all my patients is there are four pillars of mental health uh lifestyle changes for mental health that's diet exercise stress tolerance and sleep um so, I try and do all those things. Um, I try to exercise regularly. Um, I'm mostly plant based, and I do feel like that is probably one of the healthiest diets you can have for your mental health. Um, I value sleep a ton. I try and get a consistent amount of sleep. Uh, and I try to manage stress, which this year I have not done as well of a job (laughs) at, or as good of a job. Um, third year is kind of hard for psychiatry residents because you're mostly working in hospitals, but this year it's all outpatient. Um, so it's all clinics, just all day, every day, day in and day out. And that kind of wears on you a little bit. So I had to adjust a little bit with my, um, stress, uh, and my coping strategies, but, um, yeah, trying to maintain those four uh, pillars of lifestyle management. Those are the proven things that actually help. So I try and do those and music. I, I play a lot of guitar. Yeah. And so that's, that's my therapist. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine.
2: Uh, I think for me, it's, I've definitely made improvements to like sleep. Cause I know Justin talks about it a lot. And I know for me, that's helped a lot. Um, I think too, just making Connect or continuing strengthening connections with like loved ones whether it's friends or family um i've reconnected with some friends from like high school even middle school over this time period and it's been really like almost inspiring to just see like how much people are still at least in my circle care about one another um it's not the best way to cope but i think now more than ever i've felt more of a um responsibility to really stay committed to my work and committed to helping people that I'm working with whether it's my own patients or the patients just in the program in general Um, so I've definitely found myself like committing a lot to work because it's just important to me that they get better during this shitty time Um, but I think too just making just continuing to connect with uh, and checking in with my family and friends has been helpful and I think too just um, yeah just i mean my girlfriend's been very helpful too but just like just (laughs) just trying to stay connected with with the people that are important to me especially now because it's like this is the first holiday i'm not going to be home and this is the first time i've you know and i've lived in oregon now for nine years being from california so it's just trying to keep those connections strong even though we can't physically be near each other
3: yeah amazing um This is
2: your time. Plug your show. Uh, Well, uh, Justin and I have our own podcast uh, called the Millennial Mental Health Channel. Uh, We're available wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the other ones like CastBox. Uh, I'm a licensed therapist. He is a psychiatry resident. We just discussed different topics in the mental health world. So if you enjoyed us today, feel free to check us out, but don't feel the responsibility to do so. Uh, We're on Twitter and Instagram at MillennialMHC. Don't make the mistake that we did when we first had our artwork made where we misspelled millennial. Uh, (laughs) It's M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A-L-M-H-C on all kind of social media platforms.
3: (laughs) Dude, so related. When we made this podcast, I... Did not know how Dylan was spelled
2: <laughs> I'm like,
3: like Like I didn't realize that A was before The I I was spelling it I didn't like, either <laughs> And then I was asking Isabel like why I couldn't get into any of our accounts <laughs> <laughs> she was like dude you are spelling it wrong that,
2: <laughs> Spelling's rough man The English language and is Ray not I easy correct and not, Yeah seriously
3: <laughs> um, Speaking of that If you like what you heard today, you can find us at I'mTheVillainPod.
0: That's our Twitter. That's our Instagram. That's our Gmail. Otherwise, bye.